Our scripture for today is Genesis 9, verse 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is, that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Opal. You do such a good job at that, I think, is why they keep giving you longer and longer passages to read each time. But uh, good morning, everybody. Surprise, it's not Tim. Uh, my name's Kevin. If you're new here, thanks for joining us so much. Um, so starting out... I'm not sure if anybody here is a, a history buff, but my oldest son's reading through his, his history textbook this week. He came across this, what I thought was interesting, World War II trivia. So I don't know if you've seen one of these before, but it's called a LeMay bombing leaflet. And millions of these were dropped from airplanes uh, from the Air Force over Japan towards the end of the war. And written on the back of these leaflets, it said in part, it was written in Japanese, it said, read this carefully as it may save your life, or the life of a relative or friend. In accordance with America's well-known humanitarian policies, the American Air Force, which does not wish to injure innocent people, now gives you a warning to evacuate these cities and save your lives. So Lane and I were talking about this, um, and at the same time I'm preparing for this message, and I'm trying to think of some kind of illustration that I can use for this, this sermon that, that ties together this offering of peace because there's this great value of human life at stake, and that, that to fully accept this offer leads to everlasting peace, but, but to reject it, there's going to be a consequence, a, a devastating consequence, I thought. I think we found something that might work here for us. Um, not the perfect analogy, maybe, but it does give us a picture of what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 9 with this covenant. Um, and just kind of the overall theme of where I want to take us today is just this idea that God values life. God values especially human life. And he promised his 
promises to preserve it. He's, he's taking us from this transition period of judgment in the flood to a time of mercy through this covenant. But what's driving that covenant is his value of life. And ultimately, what's going to save us in the end is salvation in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, in the end, the, the decision to reject that has, has eternal consequences. But um, let's pray here before we jump into our text. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this morning. And um, we just quiet our hearts. Now we started this morning praying out in the lobby, just, just practicing quieting and stilling our hearts to, to receive what you have for us. Uh, just a reminder that, that Tim said at the beginning of the sermon series of Genesis that it's not just a story that it's about uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but it's a story to remind them to get Egypt out of themselves. And so where that's true for us this morning, and there's parts of us that we just need to get um, the own, our own uh, slavery and bondage to things of this world out of our hearts, would, would you do that this morning, Lord? Uh, would you open up our hearts by your spirit and that would be let you in. So whatever we might have brought in here this morning, whatever argument or fight that we had leaving the house, um, whatever you have for us, would we lay it down before you? I just was reminded this, just yesterday, I just heard the ice hitting our roof as it came off the tree branches and just thought, that's awesome. It's, it's the sun is shining and it is melting away this ice and it's being shed from these limbs and they can once again rise back up uh, with their burden lifted. So would you melt away the burdens that we have here this morning? Lord, we pray uh, and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess just to back us up, set the stage. Last week, Pastor Tim brought us through a couple chapters in Genesis um, 7 and 8, which is the story of the flood, and it ends at the end of chapter 8, and it introduces this covenant that we're going to spend our time talking about today. And I, as we start out, I think you'll see it in these first verses about being fruitful and multiplying. It sounds very similar to what we read back in chapter one, um, where God gives the blessing to Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation. But I'm just struck about the contrast between those two. It's a very different world that, that Noah is walking off of this ark into than what that blessing to Adam was. You know, Noah has a hindsight here that, that Adam didn't have. So just imagine what it's like. I think early in my life, I thought that this was just a story of like, oh, well, it's, a, it's a do-over. It's a start again. It's a fresh new creation. And I didn't necessarily think of it as, wow, what would it look like to walk off of the ark into like a world that's been totally destroyed by a flood? And I don't, I don't think this is a beautiful landscape we're talking about here. I think this is like a destruction. I think mud and mess and debris. And I just think a small-scale flooding of how horrible that is. What would global flooding look like? And what, I, what I'm thinking about that there is this is not Garden of Eden 2.0. Um, so even though it sounds familiar, there's no illusion here on this second time around that we're starting over in the place of harmony and peace and oneness with God that Adam experienced. This is, and, it, and we saw it right at the end of chapter 8 when, when Noah walks off the ark and, and makes a burnt offering, makes the first burnt offering, and the Lord smells it, his response in that moment was to say, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So kind of a similar uh, observation God's making from before the flood, he's he making it again afterwards. So I'm just thinking, what does it look like for Noah walking off right now to think, okay, you saved me only 
through your deliverance on this ark, what am I going to do now? Like this is a, a post-apocalypse world that I'm living in. Where do we go from here? Are you going to deliver me again, Lord? And so with all that in mind, let's, let's read uh, our verses here, the first uh, few verses from chapter 9. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. And from fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So here's this blessing. Here's a list of instructions that God's giving. And he's establishing the framework here for how he's telling Noah, I am with you. I'm going to to provide for you in a way that we're going to bring some order to this chaos. He's recognizing that wickedness is not going to go unchecked, unchallenged. I'm going to introduce like some early forms of law and governing into your world. But to do this stability and order, he's given Noah some responsibility. We see a responsibility here he's given to produce, to protect, and to preserve life. That's sandwiched in here at the beginning. Verses 1 and 7 both say essentially the same thing. It's saying, be fruitful and multiply. So that's the driving message here is to populate the earth, to produce life. And then in in verse 2, we hear this about the animals. And so he's saying the fear of you and the dread of you is going to be placed on these animals, and I'm going to deliver them into your hand. And now all of them are going to be food for you. So this is a contrast here from, from Genesis 1 where He's living harmoniously with these animals. They were given, he was given dominion over them. But now he says, all these animals are being given to you and, and you can take them for food. Everything is available as food for you. So that's in verse three, you read, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I've given you the green plants, I give you everything. But there's a caveat here in this next verse. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And so there's something going on here about the blood. Like, what is it about the blood that represents the life of something? Whether it's an animal or a man, there's, there's something tied to the blood, to the life. And God's given, giving mankind here just an early form of self-governing responsibility to protect life, to preserve life, to take life seriously, that God values life. So why is life so important here? And we read it in the next verse, verse 6, where he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this is a big difference from what we saw in the story of Cain and Abel and God's response to to Cain when he commits the first murder in in the Bible. He doesn't take Cain's life. He actually allows Cain to, to... continue to live, and and as we talked about, he actually thrives in certain ways, but in that lineage of Cain, wickedness and evil and sin grew up to the point where now we're we're talking post-judgment of this flood that came out of that. So now we're shifting that and saying, I'm going to require a reckoning for the life of man. 
And, and again, this is tied into God's value of human life being connected to the fact that we're made in his image. Three times, he says in these verses, I will require a reckoning. So right here, simultaneously, we're, we can get what maybe could be God's view on some controversial issues, the, the idea of capital punishment for taking a life, the, the value of unborn life, even the value that he has on taking one's own life, whether that be medically assisted or otherwise. But we can look around and say how, how sad it is that, that murders and abortions and suicides happen every day. They claim lives all around us. We grieve it, obviously, but we, we must not believe that we grieve it more than our Heavenly Father grieves it. We can cry together knowing how heartbreaking the loss of human life is. We feel it acutely right now. It's enough to make us ask, how long, Lord? Why, Lord? When will all of this loss and suffering and pain be over? The trials and the evil and the brokenness of this world, when will it be restored? And the good news I think that's in this text here is that it will or what we can glean from this text, it will. It will permanently come to an end. But by God's grace and by his divine mercy and by his plan, that time is not yet. And so this is where our text kind of shifts from man's responsibility, gives us a beautiful hope, I hope, there's a beautiful hope to us that, that I pray just floods in our hearts and gives us just even a glimpse of God's love for life, and his desire is not to destroy, but to draw his people to himself. Um, read in verse 8 with me. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth that's with you, as many as came out of the ark, is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So right now, this promise of peace and mercy from the judgment that Noah's just witnessed in its terrible reality in this flood is made, but it's not being made just to Noah and his family that were on the ark. It says it's made to your offspring's offspring. So from this moment in time, all of the human race is the recipient of this promise that God is making. And if, if that wasn't inclusive enough, he says it's to every creature. He uses the word every three times in these verses. It says everything that moves on the earth, I'm making this promise to. And then he goes on and, and it even says it's to the creation itself. And, and the cool and beautiful thing about this is this is an unconditional promise that God's making. Nothing that he said before about about your responsibility to produce life, to preserve life, to protect life, to not eat the blood. All this stuff is not preconditions for God to say, I promise to do this to you. This is a covenant I am making. It is not dependent on what you do in response to me. I will fulfill it because I'm God and I'm a promise keeper. Now, this isn't to say that there's no, no implication for obedience or for disobedience. There's going to be serious implications on how we live out life in this promise that God gives us. If we are obedient, there's going to be consequences of disobedience. This plays out way more as God gives the law through, through Moses, and, and, but we see it in our 
world today. Consequences for obedience, consequences for disobedience. But the thing to, to hold on to here is that this covenant he's making with creation is completely one-sided. God is making his promise. He will keep his promise. Now, because this covenant extends to the whole creation, it represents what's called God's common grace. If you aren't familiar with, with that term, it's self-explanatory. It just means God's grace that's common to all people. You know, we, we can read it even in the Bible. It talks about that he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. But it is not to be confused with God's saving grace. Saving grace is different. It's the grace of God related to our salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So if you only can take away one thing here today, remember there's a difference between common grace and saving grace. Saving grace is, saving grace is a gift of God, not, the, not by works, at least anyone should boast, but it's a gift of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. So this covenant with Noah now, it's not a permanent or a lasting hope for anyone. It's a building block in the covenants that he's going to introduce throughout the Old Testament that progressively build all the way from now with Noah, then to Abraham, and later to Moses, then to David. And then the Old Testament wraps up with this promise to David that says, I'm going to produce from your line a king who's going to last forever. He'll reign forever. And so God's people there are saying, great, when is that happening? We're under all this oppression and we can't wait for this eternal king to show up and, and change everything. And, and they're waiting. They're just waiting and waiting. 400 years goes by and then the New Testament comes in and the birth of Christ. And it ushers in now this covenant of saving grace in the arrival of Jesus and he's more than just a covenant figurehead like, like Noah is here. He is the fulfillment of all of the former covenants. This isn't just a, we tried it once, we'll start over. Started again with the flood, now with Noah, we're going to try again. And we'll try it again here and we'll, nah, we'll start over. We'll try it again here with the law, nah, didn't work, we'll start over again. Jesus is present in all that. I, I don't have, begin to have the time to go back and talk like about the significance that covenants make in the Bible, but I would so encourage anybody to, to find access to some study guide that's going to walk you through where, what the covenants are in the Bible and find Jesus in all of it. it. It'll change the way that you read your Bible. It did for me anyway. So, so the thing that I want to just have us grasp is that Jesus is present in all of these covenants and he's the fulfillment of all of them. It goes all the way back to creation so far as to where it's, he says, He's present at the creation, but then at the fall, when God is cursing the serpent and says to the serpent, the offspring of the woman will one day bruise your head, though you shall bruise his heel. So if we have a picture of, of the Old Testament, New Testament, of just like, oh, that's a testament of the law, and the New Testament is a tes testament of grace, that isn't untrue, but that's such a small picture of the, the, the beauty of what the, the narrative of the story of God is telling us. So... Not to get too bogged down in that, but what, what we do see in, the, in the, a common theme in all of these covenants is a sign. There's going to be some kind of a sign that highlights the agreement and, and it's kind of a, a binding commitment marker to follow through with the covenant that, that, and its terms. So we read that in verse 13. It says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So again, we just see all these words about every and all over and over, like this inclusivity of this promise. But a cool thing that, that if you study into, and I don't, don't have uh, training in Greek and Hebrew, but I can read a commentary in English. And, I, and I, one of the great things that I learned in, in studying this, and I'd heard this before, but the word bow, it never actually says the word rainbow in, in the text, but the word is bow. And it's the same word that's used for the bow that's used in battle, it's like a battle bow. Think of a weapon when you think of this word bow. And so the idea, the symbolic act of God hanging his bow in the clouds is, is really a symbolic act and an image of peace to this new world that's barely removed from the, the rain clouds that brought the destruction and God's lethal judgment. And so just think of the peace that that would bring to, to Noah, to the to people who, you know, they're going to retell the story of the flood and the, the fear, the trauma that could come every time a cloud passes back over and the rains pour down and you see the waters rising, thinking, is it happening again? What, you know, the bow in the clouds is a sign of God's peace. I find it interesting in these, in these verses that twice it's God saying that he will see the sign and remember. Never once does it say in there that I will put this sign so that you will see it and remember what I promised. That This is a one-sided promise. God is saying, I am the one who will follow through with this, so I will see the sign, I will remember, and I will follow through. So just because we aren't told what our response to the sign should be because we're not part of our end of the holding the covenant, it doesn't mean that it should evoke nothing in us, right? And, if it, and maybe if it didn't before, I hope that it might today. Um, I'm guessing, I just asked Mary this morning, like, I said, do you have a picture of a rainbow on your phone? And she's like, yeah, actually I do. I think she thought I wanted to use it. Or, but, I, but I said, like, I almost could guess that most of us in here have taken a picture of a rainbow. And, it's, and I'm guessing also it's not because you say, you know what that is? That's the refraction of light bouncing off of a water droplet and separating the visible spectrum into wavelengths so that we can see all the colors. And you say, praise science. Praise man that he understands science. I'm going to take a picture of that. No, you're just like, that's beautiful. That's creation on display. And again, we don't worship the creation. We should worship the creator and, and there is something special about that that strikes inspiration in us, strikes awe in us. Um, our family just last week took a trip to Washington, D.C. And, you know, speaking of pictures, one of the, the things that I like that we did, we walked through a bunch of the art galleries. And there's one time we were just tired from walking. And we sit down and we're looking at this beautiful painting. And these paintings are huge. They're like... 15 feet wide, 10 feet tall, but it's a painting of a beautiful landscape of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And, and Brady, our artist of the family, looks at that painting and he says, you know what's great? That's better than a picture because somebody created it. And I thought, that's a profound statement. And, but, the, but getting back to our trip, the thing that I feel like inspired me on that trip um, was we were in the, the Museum of uh, American History, and there's a flag in there 
giant flag. It's the flag that flew in the Battle of Fort McHenry in the Baltimore Harbor during the War of 1812. And if you've been there, maybe you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, but it's the actual flag, all kind of tattered and torn and cut up because people use it as souvenirs over the years. But it's the flag that inspired Francis Scott Key to write the lyrics to our national anthem. And it just kind of inspiring to me to think about, wow, that's the flag that they saw at that time and what would it have meant to them? And the fact that the only way they saw it is with the bombs, you know, you know the song, the bombs bursting in air gave proof. And, and I'm thinking about this sign from God, about it. It, it, it comes, but only after a storm, only in the rain clouds. But, but, but then again, when there's a ray of light shining on it, there has to be sunshine. And Pastor Tim even sent me a text yesterday um, just some pictures from, from Hawaii that they're on. And, and I said, I pray that you'll see a rainbow and just see God's grace in your, in your day. And he sent me back a picture, like, on the spot. Like, we're seeing rainbows everywhere. There's, like, rain and mist and mountains. is beautiful. And he said the thing that's great is that there has to be sunshine for this rainbow to shine. But getting back to this flag, I'm thinking, yeah, even still, the evolution of this flag and the song that it is played in our national anthem, it inspires us, right? It, it, it triggers something us to be patriotic, maybe the way it was inspired the, the people that night. And I thought if we're kingdom, if we're citizens of the kingdom of God, what would it look like for us to be patriotic Christians? Now, don't hear me start to talk about Christian nationalism. That's not what I'm getting at, at all here, but I'm talking about passionate, inspired Christ followers, the word patriot, I looked up the definition. It, it means to love one's countries and zealously support its authority and interests. So I thought, you know, what inspires us? As believers, are we inspired by the signs of God's promises? And if not, why not? And, and this idea, talking with the kids about it, what if, if we can't answer that question offhand? What if we said, all right, let's ask somebody else to Invite them in and just observe our life, like the totality of our life, public, private, and said, why don't you give me a report on what you think inspires me based off what you witnessed about my life? What would that report look like? You know, would it, would it be just a list of these things of this world that are passing away, things that don't really carry a, a heavy eternal significance? What inspires us? What are our passions? Would it, would it just be a broken cistern, you know, things that, that show we have an overly busy life that's full of distractions from things that are meaningful to us in a spiritual way, a life that bounces between busyness and idleness. You know, that flag and the museum was all protected. You know, you, could, you couldn't take pictures. You didn't want the flash on. It was low light. It had special air moving around it. We went to the archives. Same thing with the Constitution and the Declaration. They're all preserved and protected but all of these things are passing away. Is it the fact that we lose zeal in our lives is because we're putting our emphasis, our focus on things that are passing away? You know, is it, what's the testimony of your observed life? Could it be a misplaced priority of a good thing that's becoming an idol in your life? A good thing like your physical health, like your finances, like your career achievements or a healthy family or a great marriage or obedient children. I mean, the list could go on and on. These are good things, but things that are passing away. 
And the message here from our text is God values your life and he desires you to live it to the fullness. It isn't a, hey, just endure and slug it out to the end and, and it'll, be, it'll be better, trust me. It's, we read it in Psalm 16 where David says of God, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, that is the kind of thing that, that ought to inspire us. And if it didn't, I, I pray that it might today, that it would draw our attention to it. So if we truly believe that the earth and all the things in it are passing away, ultimately, then God's covenant to preserve creation should move us to be ready. Uh, I listened to a podcast of a guy who just talks about current events and, and frames them in a theological um, context, but he frequently uses this phrase of, do you know what time it is? Just knowing like what's, what's happening in our culture. Do we, do, are, we, are we so distracted with all the things of life that we, that we don't actually observe what's happening all around us? And so I'm thinking if, if the flood represents a time in the time of Noah where God's judgment came on the earth and this bow in the clouds now represents a time where his peace is introduced, and it's a time restrained from that level of judgment. Let's listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 about a time when that that time is clearly going to come to an end. He says in verse 12 of, of Matthew 24, And because the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So God's bow of judgment is not going to hang in the clouds forever. And those who have wept, maybe who are weeping now over the pain and the suffering of death and trial and hardships and brokenness, we're going to rejoice on that day when it comes and Jesus returns and wipes away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's Revelation 21.4. So if you're a believer here today, my hope is that we'd be encouraged to be patient. The way God is patient, knowing that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Pastor Tim quoted this verse. He brought it up last week. I thought, oh, I wanted to use that same one, so I'm going to go ahead and use it anyway. But it's 2 Peter 3 about the coming of the day of the Lord, and, it, and it's referencing Noah in this, in this section, but the part that I just want to bring to our attention is uh, verse 9 there, where it says, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So those leaflets I talked about at the beginning, those leaflets fell from those plains only just a few days before the bombs came. And so praise God that he is not quick to return in his judgment, but he's patient. And, and I'm just thinking how sometimes we, we can get ultra-focused on who God is. He's all love, or he's all wrath, and I, I don't understand him. And we shake our fist at, like, can't you see, God, that all of this suffering is going on? When are you going to do something about it? He is going to do something about it. This is a call to endurance. And, and if you're an unbeliever here, praise God, this is great news for you. Come to repentance. 
that's all of our, that's a call for all of us here today to be moved by God's promises that his love of life is meant to draw us to repentance, whether that's for the first time today as a new believer, whether that's for the hundredth time as you lay down at the cross a stronghold in your life and ask him to take it from you. Anxieties, fears, depressions, addictions, we give it to you, Lord, is what we're saying. You are experiencing, every one of us is experiencing his kindness right now, whether you feel like it or not. God values your life, whatever it looks like, because he values all life, because it's created in his image. But Romans 2, 4 says, but don't presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, forgetting that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so, God's covenant of peace is yours today by means of common grace, the same way he gave it to Noah. And this common grace is, praise God for it. It should inspire us to be thankful. It should inspire us to patiently endure and to long for justice, the justice that is coming. It should inspire us to be motivated to spread the word of the gospel of God to to experience the lasting kindness. And that's the best news that I just want to leave us with, that, that Jesus is, is in heaven, reigning, and he will one day return to reign over his new creation. And his covenant of saving grace is what should inspire us to surrender our lives daily and to rejoice in the fact that, yes, we suffer today, but that suffering is temporary and his peace is going to be eternal. So we pray with me. Father God, would you move in our hearts here this morning that we would see your cross, the cross of Christ, shining brightly against the backdrop of your judgment. I think sometimes we don't see the cross as bright as because we don't see the fullness of who you are. God, but I, I pray that as we... As we sit here and pray with, with closed eyes, would we see the image of a cross? Would we see it shining so brightly that it just becomes hard to even look at in the contrast? God, you value our lives so greatly, even to allow brokenness and rebellion so that more would come to repentance. Um, Father, just we've, we prayed it this morning out in the circle, but pray that for each of us in here, wherever you're calling us to to change, to have action, to, to move in our life, that we would lay aside every sin and the weight that clings so close, that we would run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, you are, Jesus, you are seated at the right hand, but you will return. And so help us, Father, to run our race now, not aimlessly, not like a boxer that's beating the air, this idea that, that we can run to receive an, an earthly prize is just like running around a track and ending up right back where we started. Father, would you not have us running just to end back up where we started? We'd be running towards you to claim that eternal prize. So give us discipline, give us self-control. Lord, where anybody in here is not feeling like their life is experiencing the fullness of joy, the pleasures forevermore, would you make known to us the path of life that you have for us? We thank you that you value life. We thank you that you are coming back, that you will, you will be a God of justice. 
uh, would we be moved to, to just see you in your love for life and, and, and give our lives to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So at, at this time, we'll kind of move into the, the time of communion, which is a fitting thing that we're talking about signs and, and symbols of covenants here. So the, the sign of the bow in the clouds is, is God's sign here to Noah. But in other covenants, when he got the covenant with Abraham, there was a sign of circumcision that was required. But here in the new covenant, God says he's going to put his law on our hearts. He's going to replace our hearts and give us new hearts. He's going to replace the, the law written on stone, and he's going to write it on our flesh. But we're also called to remembrance, and, and that's what we're going to do here now as we come together to the table to join in this meal. So when we do this, you're familiar enough now of how we do it. Will we not rush to the table, but will we not sit in our chairs either in terms of like recounting the, the week and, and thinking, I'm ashamed of what I've done. I've, I've guilt over these things. Give those things to the Lord and come to this table enthusiastically and, and boldly. Um, when, you, when you do, go ahead and return to your seats. Remain standing and we'll take it all together. <laughs>